Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Howdy. Today's episode is a replay of one of Sue and Ann's can't miss episodes. Enjoy. Think about what our opponents are fighting. They're not just fighting us. They're fighting truth. They're fighting evidence. They're fighting history. But most of all, they're fighting time. Any one of those four forces could kick their asses without any help by us. How the hell are you going to overcome truth and evidence and history and time? That's what they're actually up against. Now, a lot of us are going to get harmed and chewed up in the process, and I'm sorry that's happening. But I know victory is certain because of who they've arrayed themselves against. I fail to believe that it is possible for mankind to defeat time, truth, evidence, and history. I don't care what your political perspectives are. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Sue and I talk a lot on the show about promoting secure relating, but that really means nothing if we mean it just for ourselves. Growing security inherently means helping to pull each other up, co-regulating for good, and that means everyone. So working for human rights and social justice is one and the same as growing security. Today's episode is going to impact you. You're going to feel things. I guarantee you're going to learn things. I absolutely know I did. Our guest expert is Loretta Ross. She's a professor at Smith College who works to cultivate an all-inclusive human rights movement as a form of radical love and revolutionary strategy. She's a nationally recognized speaker, educator. She's a veteran activist and a pioneer in the human rights and reproductive justice movement since 1970. So her personal story, as well as her professional journey, are incredibly compelling and part of her fire She's perfected this combination of humor and punch, and you'll hear it throughout the discussion between her and my co-host, Sue Marriott. Now, you'll see that she has mastered the art of being able to deliver kind, yet powerful and challenging message that center on what she calls climbing the mountain of human rights together, and emphasizes our need not to polarize and divide. Rather than calling people out in shame, that we often need to call people in. So she talks about self-forgiveness and compassion. And in her discussion, she outlines the 5C continuum of calling out, cancel, calling in, calling on, and calling it off. It's a really powerful process of promoting social change. So for the longtime listeners, you might hear, I know Sue and I did, some of her discussion through the lens of helping others and regulating their nervous system and staying in the window of tolerance when you're having difficult but important conversations. She would just say is being pragmatic. And I think that's actually exactly what she says. 
She just does it because it's more effective. Now, her TED Talk, Don't Call People Out, Call Them In, was published in August of last year, and she's currently writing a book to be released this year, Calling In the Call-Out Culture. So she's also published several other books on reproductive justice, an array of chapters and articles and co-publications. She's also been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Time Magazine, and many other outlets. What she has to say is really important to Sue and I, and I know will be to many of you, especially if you spend time with teenagers and young adults out there. She really highlights how young adults are having trouble because they're being inducted into this world at a very painful time, and they feel this incredible responsibility to do something, to right all the injustices. And she talks about them being radicalized before they have their feet under them before they know that they've been radically loved themselves. So I'm very, very pleased to bring to you Loretta Ross today. But before we jump in, I want to do a big shout out. This content and our entire archive of episodes is there and available to you for free. And we want that to continue. And in order to do that, we are helped by those of you that have become our patrons you are our online community through Patreon and Supercast. So to all of your neuro nerds, we do a big thank you for helping us support this program. And we also want to do a shout out to our sponsor. And so today's episode sponsor is Simple Practice. So if you see clients of any sort and need a practice management system to keep you organized, do your billing, keep you paid, Simple Practice is the answer. And by the way, our listeners get two months for free. So you can head over to simplepractice.com backslash therapist uncensored. And by the way, both Sue and I use this management system and it has been a lifesaver. So we really highly recommend it. And by the way, by just checking out the sponsor and considering using them is a big way to support the show. So thank you, Simple Practice. And now I'm very excited to bring to you Loretta Ross. My name is Loretta Ross and I'm a Texas gal born in Temple, Texas, grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and feel like I'm an I-35 family, so. <laughs> well, yeah, me too. But I live in Atlanta, Georgia now, because I've been gone from Texas since the days of the hemisphere. I left in 1970 to go to college, and I haven't lived back in Texas since then. I'm a professor at Smith College in the program for the study of women and gender. Because I'm a professional feminist, I became a feminist when I went off to college at the age of 16, and I haven't looked back. I've worked in women's rights, civil rights, human rights work for the more than 50 years. Right now, I'm really focused on not what work we do, but how we do the work. And so I started six years ago a book called Calling In the Calling Out Culture, and it actually can be blamed on my grandson because at the age of about 12, he decided he didn't know how to answer his cell phone. And I knew this was incomprehensible because every kid knows how to answer the cell phone, but it would go to voicemail. And he said, well, Grandma, if you want to reach me, get on Facebook. Well, I got on Facebook just for him to immediately migrate off, saying it was for old fogies now. And I didn't follow him to Instagram or where Snapchat or wherever he went, but I stayed on Facebook. And that's when I noticed how unbelievably mean people were to each other. 
I am convinced that people give themselves license to say things online behind that cloak of anonymity that they wouldn't dare say to a person's face. And so when I noticed this and then pointed it out to some young people I was working with, they said, oh, you mean the call-out culture? And I was like, y'all have named it? <laughs> and this young person said, oh, yeah, yeah, we deal with this all the time. I said, well, what are y'all doing about it? And she shrugged and walked away. And so I began processing my 50 years of activism. Back in the 70s, we used to call it trashing each other and claiming people weren't relevant. And that was the worst thing we could call somebody irrelevant. <laughs> and learning and really revisiting all the experiences I'd had in my life of when I called people out, but also when I got called out myself, what I learned from other people about giving people grace and forgiveness and calling people in. I mean, an icon of the civil rights movement, Reverend Joseph Lowry, used to say all the time, we've got to learn how to turn to each other, not on each other. And this was being said in the 1960s, so obviously they were dealing with the call-out culture too. And so I began writing a book about six years ago on calling in the calling-out culture Unfortunately, my son died right after I'd begun writing the book unexpectedly of a heart attack. So I put it aside for a couple of years because I just didn't feel like writing a book while I dealt with that unimaginable pain. But I picked it up a few years ago again, started writing on it. And then because of COVID, I started teaching my techniques online for $5 a class. And next thing I know, I have 700 people enrolled because I had really tapped into a frustration a lot of people are feeling, that we're being too mean to each other, we're too quick to judge each other, we're calling each other out, we're blaming everybody, we think that we can change people when we can't. And so I just fallen into a gestalt that was happening at the time. And so the success of teaching it online and I continue to teach it online now, I have a staff of us teaching it online, led to a inquiry by Simon & Schuster. So they offered me a pretty generous book deal to finish my book. And so that's where I am. But I've taught calling in techniques to eighth graders and to C-suite executives. It's really about making different choices about how you pursue accountability with other people. It's not about letting harms and injustices get a free pass. It's about making choices about how you seek that accountability in a way that's more likely to be effective than not. Totally identify. We get called out all the time, even though, you know, I've been an activist in my life and we've done a lot. And as far as from the gay and lesbian world, as parents, gay parents, things like that. So we're aware of it. But according to our children, <laughs> we are in the Stone Age. And, you know, you talk about woke, and we are constantly being pointed out how unwoke that we are, which is, you know, in some ways wonderful, but there's this certainty. But I was curious for you on what do you think is behind before we get into how to how to both hold people accountable, like not to silence yourself, but to be effective in your communication is what I'm hearing. But do you have a sense of like what's driving some of that? Like these aren't mean people, 
but they're behaving in this way that is really cutting and you know extreme polarizing well there's a lot of motivations for the call out culture some people are doing it in good faith and those are the ones i care about and some people are doing it in bad faith they're weaponizing the fact that they don't want to be held accountable for the harm that they do for the policies that they promote for the lies that they perpetrate kind of like the entire Republican Party right now. (laughs) And so I tend to distinguish between whether or not the person is operating in good faith or bad faith. If I actually believe that you are making a sincere attempt to do the right thing, but you're going about it the wrong way, then I'm going to invest my time and attention in you because I think you are willing to learn how to do what you want to do better. If you're doing it in bad faith and you're trying to cause harm or you're trying to shut people down or you're trying to evade accountability and double down on the harm that you're doing, then I'm going to use my favorite call out tactics on you because I do reserve the right to call out racism, bigotry, fascism, homophobia and transphobia with glee. If you are dedicated to harming people and you're doing it on purpose. I don't have to believe your milly mouth lies. I choose not to be that credulous, that naive. But I don't think that's the majority of humanity. I think most people, particularly young people, are so earnestly trying to do the right thing. And so we've given them this radical consciousness without the radical tools to handle it responsibly. And so they feel that the weight of the world is on them because we didn't fix racism and homophobia and sexism and transphobia before they came. And now they feel an urgency to do it. And they're going to call out everybody who they don't think is doing it the way they think it should be done. So you've got radical consciousness meeting youthful eagerness. <laughs> and no one is speaking to that. No one is helping people be able to integrate those things. And so that's why I love teaching young people about calling in. I mean, the first thing I try to get young people to understand is perspective. Stop imagining that you're the entire chain of freedom, that, it, that the whole revolution rests on your shoulder. Because the chain of freedom stretches backwards towards all of our ancestors and forward into our descendants. So our whole job is simply to make sure that the chain doesn't break at our link. Mm, That's lovely. Yeah. So just be the strongest link you can be in the chain. Don't assume that it all starts and stops with you. Okay. So what, so what if you get a response of, well, there won't be ancestors because of climate change and this is different than it's ever been. Well, that of course is part of the lack of a time and an event horizon. Of course, everything is different than it used to be. That's called change. (laughs) So yes, you're right. This is different than it used to be. And guess what? Tomorrow, it will be different than today. You got that right. Guess what will also happen tomorrow? You won't think tomorrow the same way you think today, because that's also called growth. (laughs) And so don't assume that the snapshot you're taking today, the screenshot you're taking today, is the whole depth of that picture that you are looking at. It absolutely is not. You're taking care of them. And again, this is another calling in, really. Keep your fire, keep your spirit. But it also starts with self-forgiveness. 
because this is an important term to teach them, because they can be so self-critical. And that's the key to why they're so hypercritical of other people, because they haven't been able to learn how to accept and forgive themselves for not being perfect, because there's this whole worship of perfectionism that's really toxic. And so they tend to use that same rubric to judge other people for not being perfect. And they think that's what they're supposed to do. And so it really starts with accepting themselves as works in progress that will make mistakes and will use every mistake as a learning opportunity, not as a reason for punishment or self-blame or getting down on oneself. You know, just because you've been through stuff, that doesn't mean you get the right to make harm happen to other people. You know, you got to break that hurt people, hurt people thing because that doesn't justify what you're not accountable for yourself. And so it starts with self-assessment and self-forgiveness. All calling in practices start with that. What's going on with you? Because what's going on with you will dictate how you choose to call somebody in or out. If you're in a sufficiently healed enough place, then you're going to be in a space that's more predisposed to offer grace and respect and forgiveness to others. But if you are bleeding from your own emotional wounds, any calling in or calling out will really only result in your bleeding all over the other person, even if you don't mean to. I love this. This is oxygen and an area that has none. Um, It's so beautiful. Do you get pushback from the left? Yeah, and legitimate pushback from the left, by the way, because I'm a human rights activist. Calling out is what we do. I mean, we criticize governments and individuals and corporations, usually because private appeals don't work. You know, we tried to write the letter campaign to you to get you to stop polluting the river, or we tried to meet with your board of trustees or directors or shareholders to get you to change courses. And so we've been backed into a corner where the calling out is our best weapon because the only thing left for us to do is to cause you shame. And so given our familiarity with that tactic, our problem is we think that's the first weapon of choice and not the last one. And that's where the pushback from the left comes back. They think we should always use shame as a way to create change in other entities, whether it's individuals, corporations, or governments. When in fact, it should be the weapon of last resort, not the first thing out of the toolbox. Do you think that that also goes back to what you said earlier, which I love about self-examination and kind of our own internal shame of not doing enough? So then, you know, if you catch somebody being too soft, then you're going to stamp that right out. Right. And you're going to project that shame onto them and all of that. The other thing that I try to get young people to understand is that there's many pathways to the mountaintop. So the your pathway may not be someone else's pathway. As a matter of fact, it will not. It's guaranteed not to be someone else's pathway because they don't have your lived experiences. They have their own. And so we all learn things at different paces, at different times. We choose to go to the mountaintop a different way because of what we've been through versus what someone else has been through. I actually had this insight, though, long before I learned the calling out concept in the 1980s when I was on the staff of NOW, the National Organization for Women. And I'd been hired 
to start and run their first women of color program. I spent my first two years at now trying to convince white women to understand what the life of a black woman was like. And I gave up out of frustration, not because of what the white women were doing, but what I was doing wrong. It took me a while to understand they didn't even understand how to be appropriate white women and live in comfort with their whiteness. So if they were uncomfortable being white, how the hell could I get them comfortable in understanding blackness? I'm like, oh, I got a different project here. You're going to love them through this in some ways. It's like they need something first. Yeah. And so I stopped being angry at them. I was like, oh, okay. And so I started thinking about the concept that I call appropriate whiteness. How do you learn to be proud of being white? Without white supremacy, how do you learn to not feel shame and guilt for characteristics that you have no damn control over, but you can repurpose in the service of human rights and justice? I mean, it's a different project. And that's one of the reasons I get so impatient with a lot of what's called DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion training because it starts from a place of shame and punishment. And I cannot convince myself that any human being is going to be attracted to something that makes them feel bad about themselves. Yeah, shame shame doesn't work. It doesn't bring out our best self. That's for Right, yes, exactly. Yes. And so the whole predicate of you fight white supremacy by not separating it from white identity is flawed. You know, white supremacy is a body of ideas. It's an ideology. Whiteness is just an identity, just like blackness is an identity. And, you know, not all white supremacists are white and not all white people are white supremacists. And if you don't understand that fundamental fact, what is going to be your approach to doing the work with people who have identities that you need to work with in order to defeat white supremacy, the ideology. You know, I know some about your history. I know that you have a very painful history, including helping people in the Klan and white supremacist groups move. You've, you've had to endure that level of violence and hatred, those groups, and bridge to them. Do you have a sense of your own, where does this bubbling well of compassion I don't know if it's compassion or pragmatism. <laughs> if black folks could end white supremacy without white folks, it would have been over a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's effective. It's about effectiveness. <laughs> right. I know we need white folks to deconstruct white supremacy because white folks created it. And so we have an advantage at this particular historical moment because more white people have been turned off by the ideology of white supremacy because of the way Trump behaved than ever before in the history of America. And if we don't recognize what a wonderful that opportunity is, you know, when they say America is divided, no, America ain't divided, white America is divided. And this is our opportunity to take advantage of that division and say the white people in America who are repulsed by white supremacy and want to work towards human rights, those are our allies. And just because they don't know the latest words or they'll get gender pronouns wrong or whatever the hell you think is wrong with them, 
which really is a reflection of what's wrong with you. But anyway, <laughs> whatever you think they need to work on, get the F over it. Because at worst, they're your problematic allies. The best way I tell it to young people, because there's a whole lot of conversation among young people about what they call performative activism. You know, you just put up a Black Lives Matter sign, but you don't really mean it. Or you just put up a love has no home here sign, but you don't really mean it. And I tell them, first of all, you need to get over yourself because you haven't done any research. You don't even know anything about that person you're busily passing judgment on. So you're making an opinion from an ill-informed place, which is one of the hallmarks of stupidity. But leaving that aside, <laughs> the fact that they put up that sign has told you the number one thing you need to know. And they all say, well, what was that? That they're not on the other side. No member of the hate movement has ever put up a Black Lives Matter sign. So you already know they're on your side. You just got to figure out how to work with them. Which is part of why they put up the Black Lives Matter sign. It's like, exactly. this is something I can do. Exactly. You know, I try to speak with love because I'm not into shaming people into doing the right thing. I don't think it works. But I do use a bit of mockery and humor because I'm like, uh, why do you think you know everything you need to know about a person just because you saw a Facebook post you didn't like? Were you granted that ESP denied to the rest of us? <laughs> and by the way, did someone have a cell phone recording your most stupid moment the way that you're using somebody else's most stupid moment against them? So sometimes I can use a little bit of humor to make them self-reflect about whether they want to do things differently. We talk a lot about interpersonal neurobiology and attachment and things like that. And some, this is how we, I would describe what you're doing is you're, you're signaling safety to them that you're okay, you know, through just your general presence, certainly, but also the humor and things like that. Like you're saying, you're, it's almost like on one hand, you're saying you're safe with me and I'm going to tell you how it is. I didn't know that's what I was doing because I actually don't believe in safety. <laughs> I had a wonderful, loving family, so that's not the problem. But my family was also marred by multiple generations of incest. And so safety was so situationally specific for me. There were times in my family situation when I felt safe and there were times when I felt decidedly unsafe. Then, you know, when I was 10 years old and my mom and dad and the rest of us were moving from Virginia to Mississippi, we got shot at in Mississippi when I was 10. And then, you know, I was raped and all other kind of stuff that happened to me. So safety kind of feels like you know, Valhalla or someplace to me that doesn't, has never really existed. So it's not something that I spend a whole lot of time worrying about not having. And I think that safety and comfort is privileged too much as a way to keep people from dealing with the reality of things as they are versus how you'd like them to be. Particularly since I've spent a lot of my career working with white women, the first thing I have to disabuse them of is this belief that you are entitled to feel safe and comfortable in every interaction in life. Because the reality is that, you, first of all, you're neither safe nor comfortable. You just want the illusion of it. <laughs> you know? and, and then you want me to participate in the illusion for you. <laughs> and as I tell them, like I tell my students, 
Do you want me to protect you from reality or teach you about it? You need to choose how you want this engagement to be. So you're leading them into the discomfort that's already there and expanding their capacity to handle the discomfort. You're more resilient than you think you are. So that was a tiny example, I think, of sort of calling me in, in the sense of, I was off base with that. And I think you're right about what you said. And as a matter of fact, as a therapist, I do feel that way in group. You're like, this isn't safe. And I'm like, safe, what's safe? You know what I mean? Like, it is a privilege. It's actually an illusion. I don't know if it's a privilege because I don't know anyone who is actually safe. Even very rich people aren't safe. My friends who had, you know, multi-generational inherited wealth, that wealth became a barrier between them and their mother bond, or, you know, whether they could trust the servants around them, or whether they could ever secure a romantic relationship. I mean, safe? what, What individual has actually experienced safety? Show them to me, because I don't know I think that's right. It's a, it's a mental construct that is an illusion, and you're resisting the invitation to participate in that illusion. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that you have to feel scared either. I mean, it's not a binary. And so certainly I feel safer if I choose not to walk down that dark alley half drunk. <laughs> you know? But even if I was totally sober and that alley was well lit, Would I actually be safe? People like your students, how do they respond? They are incredibly grateful because the things they say is that, oh my God, I don't have to be on all the time. I don't have to go around looking for the next fight I've got to have. I can wear this t-shirt and if somebody criticizes my t-shirt, I can stop and ask them, well, what's going on with you that you would have a reaction to my (laughs) t-shirt? And you're not wearing it, I am. You know, they really like having options because before they felt boxed in that they had to say the precisely right thing or write the precisely right thing that stands up to the test of time, that won't be called out over social media, that won't be weaponized against them in the future. I mean, literally walking around on eggshells. And they are so relieved to have voices about that stuff and know that they're going to make mistakes and their mistakes are okay. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing fatal about making a mistake. As a matter of fact, when you make a mistake, and this is what one of my mentors told me when I was in my 20s, they said, when you have bad news about yourself, Loretta, run and tell it so that you can control the narrative. If you tell it first, it can never be used against you. But if you wait and try to hide it, then you're vulnerable to whoever gets that lever. And so they, they love hearing that kind of advice because they've been trained to hide up, to hide and cover up mistakes instead of own them and learn from them. There's something really powerful about your message. I can feel it myself. I know people that are listening to this podcast are going to be able to feel it. There's like, as you're speaking, I don't know, I keep thinking about the objective idea of safety is one thing, but there is something you go from inside your body, you go from threat, which is what you're describing, like, I'm not good enough, and therefore I'm going to be on eggshells, to maybe like more of a sense of inner security, that I'm a mess, just like we all are a mess, and we're all in this together, and we're going to do this together, so I can step on the eggshells, something like that. Does that 
Does that resonate? I can step on the eggshells and I will survive it. I will survive it. That's right. And not only will I survive it, I'll be better next time. Like, whoa, look how bad I am. I not only went through a crucible, but I kicked that crucible's ass and look at me now. It's <laughs> wonderful. So what are some of the techniques that you teach? I call it the 5C continuum, first of all, to the calling in process. First, there's calling out, which is what we all recognize, that publicly shaming people for something they've done or said that you thought needed to be challenged or them held accountable for. The ultimate call out is cancellation, where you're trying to get someone fired or deplatformed or punished in a very severe way for something you think they've done wrong. The third C is calling in, where you actually are choosing to pursue accountability, but instead of using anger, shaming, and blaming, you're going to use love and respect and grace as your method of choice. The fourth C is calling on, which is created by Sonia Renee Taylor. I love this concept she gifted us. And that is calling on people to do better and to be better. So you're neither calling them in or calling them out both of which require an investment of time, but you can call on people to do better. Like my favorite calling on sentence is to say, you know, look them straight in the eye and just say, I beg your pardon. And then just wait for them to figure out what they said that evoked that reaction. And quite often they'll walk their words back because it didn't give the reaction that they wanted. Oh, and I should mention that calling in by the way, wasn't even an original concept to me. A trans man named Lone Tran invented that in 2013. I just happened to run across it after I started writing my book. And then the fifth C is calling it off. You get a chance to decide whether you want to go down that rabbit hole. You don't have to engage either online or in person. You could call it off temporarily, like saying, you know, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with this right now. Can I get back to you? Or you can call it off permanently and say, I will never want to have this conversation with you again. And so you can call it out, cancel, call in, call on, or call it off. So I teach people that range of options that they have. And then I teach startup sentences that you can memorize that are easily learned for you to use each of those options. So like I just used, you know, I beg your pardon. You can use a calling in sentence if somebody says something you think is a little problematic. You can say, hmm, that's a very interesting perspective. Tell me more. You've not agreed with it, but you've invited them into a conversation instead of a fight. So that's a great calling in sentence. Tell me more. Or if you want to call them out, like if I you know, got in front of someone who tried to claim that the election was stolen <laughs> or something like that, I might say, you know, I can't believe that you persist in parading how deluded you are right now. Are you okay? <laughs> you know, what is going on with you to make you feel that you're smarter than the rest of the evidence that's out here? You know, what is your need to be the smartest person against scientists, against evidence, against everything. What is that saying about you? And do you need some help? <laughs> and then calling it off is like I said, those words I use, you know, I don't have the time for this, or I don't, I'm not in an emotionally, you know, healthy enough space for this conversation, or, 
you know, any kind of thing. So I teach people startup sentences like that. And then we practice. But we practice in different ways because remember I was talking about self-assessment? The first thing that I have people revisit in their lives is how mistakes were handled when they were children. Because if you were severely punished and shamed for making mistakes as a child, then you think it's quite normal to punish and shame others for making a mistake. But if you were counseled and forgiven for making a mistake and taught what you could learn from making that mistake, then you're predisposed to offer that same grace to others. And so the question becomes, do you want to continue the patterns that you learned in your childhood? Or as an adult, do you want to make different choices? Because that goes back to what you were saying about the self-assessment and self-evaluation. And then you're not in the fight. You're pointing them inward. And so you have choices. There's no law that says you have to act out the patterns of your childhood. <laughs> you really you have, you have to know what they are. And secondly, decide whether they're working for you or not. If they're working for you, then don't change them. But if they're not working for you, think about what other options you have. And I love how practical that your teaching is. Going back to the calling in. So when you say, tell me more about that, and they do, and they explain to you how the election was rigged or how January 6th was a natural uprising of when the, you know, when your government's, you know, whatever the, the thing is, so they answer you. So then what? Well, then I ask them again, how do you feel about that? You know, and what do you think you should do with those feelings? And has that perspective helped you grow closer to your children or helped you get along with your neighbors better? How is that actually working for you now? And then I have one strategy that I call my Uncle Frank strategy that I've used a lot. My Uncle Frank, who's neither my uncle nor named Frank, but, you know, he's still alive, so I have to protect the living, has a way of blowing up every family gathering by saying something racist, sexist, homophobic, or transphobic, because that's Uncle Frank's way of getting attention. And I used to go for the bait all the time. I was the kid that was always arguing with Uncle Frank because I couldn't help but give him the attention he wanted because I wanted to prove how wrong he was. And finally, I changed my tactic. And I told Uncle Frank, I said, Uncle Frank, I know you're a good man. And this, you know, kind of, kind of said, I know you'd run into a burning building and you'd rescue someone who was in danger if you could. And you wouldn't care whether they were gay or an immigrant or black. I know that, Uncle Frank. I know you that way. So tell me, Uncle Frank, are you the good Uncle Frank that I know you are or the bad Uncle Frank that had those words come out of your mouth? Tell me which Uncle Frank I actually have. So that's neither calling him in or calling him out. That's calling on him to tell you who he wants to be in his niece's eye. And it's really a way of letting him save face. Yeah. So that he can acknowledge it, but you've already given him the platform of like, don't go this direction. You know, like you're guiding, you know, this is who we want to see, not, I can't believe you said that, period. Well, it builds upon the absolute fact that most people think better of themselves than they display in the world. <laughs> and so I was thinking it, it appeals to their narcissism, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. And so why not reinforce that good? perception they have of themselves 
and make it work for you as opposed to pouncing on the bad stuff. Because Adrian Renee Brown says it beautifully. She said, that which you pay attention to grows. So when you're dealing with those problematic people, if you pay attention to the problematic aspects, that's what they're going to focus on. But if you pay attention to what you know is good about them, maybe they'll focus on that instead and strengthen that muscle, that understanding, and live into that definition of self more than the other one. Yeah, it's giving people what to do, not what not to do. Exactly. I want you to think about how to be the guy who would be that selfless in rescuing somebody every day in life. Because the way I want America, I want my country to act like a natural disaster happens every day. Because we are so warm and so giving and so compassionate after a natural disaster. And as soon as the crisis is over, we go back to our normal selves. Well, I want us to act like that natural disaster happens every day towards each other. Yeah, because you're saying it's there. It's already there. Right. We don't have to grow it. Yeah, and we don't have to have a flood, Noah's flood, to, to have it. <laughs> it's there. All we have to do is build upon it as a normal way to be. It's so brilliant. And this is a applicable, you know, there's going to be therapists from all over the world listening to this. This is applicable to us, uh, to our clients. You are just doing therapy on the world. I'm telling I you. Wish. I you, wish. I, I, I you mean, are. Maybe, maybe I'm channeling my own therapist because <laughs> I've been in therapy since I was well, the last 41 years. But I'm convinced that people are much better than we've allowed them to be. And we've encouraged them to be. And I've seen the ugliest things humanity can do to each other, both as a rape survivor, a director of a rape crisis center, a deprogrammer of white supremacy. I mean, I specialize in looking at human vomit. And I'm convinced we can do better because even the most terrible people are complicated and have good sides to them that it, sometimes you have to dig real deep to find, but it's there. And it gives us an opportunity to help them grow that part of themselves instead of the negative part of themselves. So when you say the deprogramming, can you say a little bit more about that? Like, is it encapsulated in what you're teaching or is that a different animal? Well, I think it's all related. My former boss, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who'd been an aide to Dr. Martin Luther King, used to tell us all the time that when you ask people to give up hate, then you need to be there for them when they do. And when he first told me that, I was like, oh, hell to the now. <laughs> if the Klan hated Black folks, I was all right with hating them back. <laughs> I didn't see any problems with that quid pro quo, right? Right, you're just matching them. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I didn't start this hate game, but I'm going to win it. <laughs> kind of thing. But where I worked at the National Anti-Klan Network, which was renamed the Center for Democratic Renewal, it was part of our mission to help people who left hate groups. And then it became part of my job to work with these people. And I do need to say that I've never seen an example of someone flipping somebody out of a hate movement. I've heard stories that it can happen and you know, people seem to think that you could have a conversation with a Klansman and suddenly they repent. I've never seen any evidence of that. 
what generally has happened in my experience is that they have their own epiphanies and they don't, they're lost. They don't know what to do. That they've lived in a netherworld of one set of beliefs and they, they can repudiate some of those beliefs, even not all of those beliefs, but some of those beliefs, and they don't know where to go after that. And what kind of thing causes that kind of an epiphany? It could be a number of things. In Tennessee, I was working with a group of women whose husbands and sons were in the Klan, and they didn't want their children raised in the hate movement, not because I think they were repudiating hate, but because they were doing so much criminal activity. And they didn't want their kids going to jail. And they knew in Appalachia, you know, class was going to compromise their relationship to the police, despite their whiteness. <laughs> so, so they were scared for their children. And of course, I would suspect, though I don't have any evidence, that they were victims themselves of a lot of domestic violence and stuff. Because the stories they told were not the happy homemaker in a clan rope story. Another person I worked with, son was born with what his Nazi buddies called a genetic defect, a cleft palate. And his Nazi buddies told him that his son needed to be culled from the white race because he was not a perfect Aryan baby. And so that caused him to want to leave the Klan. Another left because of criminal activities. The FBI was getting too close to some of the things that the Klan chapter was doing. And so the husband and wife team left. So there's a variety of reasons that people suddenly figure out that these aren't the people they want to hang out with anymore. <laughs> but it's rarely because they fell in love with a black woman or they suddenly discovered that Jewish people were human after all or whatever. It, those are the scripts that Hollywood portrays. <laughs> those are not the experiences that I've had. Maybe other people have. But once they do make that break with the hate movement, usually they're quickly exiled from that hate movement, if not killed, because you don't just quit the Klan like the Kiwanis Club, because you're leaving with a lot of knowledge of criminal activities that people will kill to keep secret. And so they end up calling organizations like ours for help to relocate and we don't have like the FBI's witness protection program. We can't help you change identities or anything, but we can use a network of churches and synagogues and temples and what have you to help you, you know, go to another town, get you some clothes, because quite often they leave in the middle of the night. They don't get a chance to pack up and, you know, announce, you know, by getting a pod planted on their front yard that they're leaving or anything like that. And so our job is to help them relocate and restart life under their identity. Because like I said, we can't help you change your name or anything, but we can give you a network of supported people to help you restart life. And just because they had an epiphany on one issue doesn't mean they've had it across the board. Because a person who is fearful for their children may still be homophobic. (laughs) or anti-Semitic. And so by working with them, it becomes a process to help them recalibrate their thinking. It's not like overnight, they just suddenly saw the light and were suddenly politically correct on every issue. Mm -hmm. Well, you're also describing like one kind of that cult-like behavior that if you stray away, you're out, which is kind of, again, that narcissistic, you know, there's one end but also just even when you're not in that, 
that I think some of the human rights movement is about you have to give stuff up. There's this idea of you can't be comfortable. You have to give things up. And people don't want to do that. Unless, like in these cases that you're describing, it sounds like almost it was like happenstance things happened a little bit more than like this internal change because that there's so much pressure. Usually the problem is, is that whenever you join a cult, by definition, you have to turn your brain off. The question is how permanently can you keep your thinking from happening? And so it usually, the ones I've heard described, it's a trickle. At first you notice one thing that doesn't make sense and then another thing that doesn't make sense, then another, and, and then it's the accumulation of things you can no longer explain to yourself that lead to that mental shift, that mental break. It's really the one incident, but the people that I've mostly worked with are fairly intelligent people who just couldn't take, you know, people were serving them bigger bullshit sandwiches and inviting them to take bigger bites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And at some point they gagged. Mm-hmm. Do you think that will happen in this tight community that Trump kind of has his arms around? Well, well see, there's a difference between true believers and, and opportunists. Trump is surrounded by a bunch of opportunists, and they don't even believe the crap that they push on their own followers. That's why they're vaccinated and they're telling their followers not to get vaccinated. That is so clear that they are using the gullibility of their followers, they don't actually believe the crap that they're pushing. I mean, you know, Ted Cruz has a degree from Harvard, I believe, and you're going to tell me he's as stupid as he manages to sound every day? I don't think so. So that it's opportunistic. It's not not faith-based. You're not believing in the cause. Right. So when people are peddling lies because of raw ambition, They're impervious to the truth. Now, I did have this conversation yesterday because of a reporter friend of mine. I did an interview yesterday about January 6th. And this friend of mine asked me, how could I keep hope and optimism up in such a time? I said, well, actually, I don't have to be very optimistic or very hopeful because I try to be pragmatic. Think about what our opponents are fighting. They're not just fighting us. They're fighting truth. They're fighting evidence. They're fighting history. But most of all, they're fighting time. Any one of those four forces could kick their asses without any help by us. How the hell are you going to overcome truth and evidence and history and time? That's what they're actually up against. Now, a lot of us are going to get harmed and chewed up in the process, and I'm sorry that's happening. But I know victory is certain because of who they've arrayed themselves against. I fail to believe that it is possible for mankind to defeat time, truth, evidence, and history. I don't care what your political perspectives are. It's not hopeful. It's just true. It's just pragmatic. You know, because then it's not like, oh, I'm hopeful and then I'm going to lose my hope. It's just you're saying this is just the truth. And even your example earlier when I followed up with what would you say if they answered you was exactly the same thing you're saying now, which is like there, there's an active process of delusion to be able to stay in the ranks. And that's just a matter of time when you begin, you know, the sandwich gets too big. Yeah. And at some point, you've either got to start thinking again, or just accept that you delight in insanity. 
and that feels safer for you for some reason. I consider sanity a choice I make every day. I think it's a joy to be able to know that choice and make it. So is there anything that you would say to the folks that are trying to hold it together? I really love the idea of everybody's in their own place. Everybody's flawed. There's no purity. Nobody's pure. I wonder if you could speak to something about hanging in or like where to go, like with COVID and with the climate and with all of these things. I just know, I mean, I can see it and I can hear it. Murder, suicide is up. Any negative anything right now is just terrible. Like we've been under this crunch for quite a while and I just see people deteriorating. I don't know if any of these things are up or just being more reported. So that's part of, you know, when I ran a rape crisis center, because we advertise the hotline for people to call for help, we could never figure out whether more rapes were occurring or were more reporting of rape occurring. And so I'm asking that same question when we get into the uh, statistics of how bad things are in life. We need to examine what that data set we're looking at. Is it more reporting that we're looking at or more occurrences that we're looking at? Because we never actually had good baseline data kind of thing. But nevertheless, whether it's more occurrence or more reporting, my answer would be the same. To survive this world, you need a toggle switch. You need to be able to turn that consciousness on and off. You know, there needs to be time when you, turn, when you toggle your consciousness off and you just sink into enjoying Twilight, the film. Or you sink into watching those numbing Westerns that... I have a friend of mine that has watched every episode of Gunsmoke for 50 years because that's how she toggles her consciousness off. Yet when she toggles this back on, she's a hardcore activist. And you need to give yourself permission not to be woke, not to be on, not to be hypercritical, not to be able to provide an analysis of all the gender dynamics of every romantic comedy in the world. Sometimes you just have to watch the damn thing and enjoy it. And so that starts without taking yourself so damn seriously. Again, talking about you're just the link in the chain. You ain't the entire damn chain. And so it is okay to turn it off and take that vacation to the Caribbean where you just lay on the beach and do some healing. It is okay to, you know, gorge on your ice cream one day because that's what you feel like doing without beating yourself up because you ate the whole carton. I mean, really? Really, we're forgetting to give people permission to be basically human. It should be fun. Yeah. If you're not having fun fighting injustice, you're doing something wrong. My mentor, Leonard Zeskin, is the one that framed that for me. He said, Loretta, lighten up. Fighting fascists should be fun. Is being a fascist that stuff. <laughs> and I've taken that to heart ever since he told me that. <laughs> I said, oh, you're right. Walking through life immersed in the hate movement, that's the part that sucks. I'm immersed in the human rights and the love movement. Why am I not having fun? Nobody's saying these things. This is not a message that is being delivered very well, or at least very effectively. The message is more the drumbeat, the drumbeat, the drumbeat. You know, this is happening. What are you doing about it? And I think that it's pragmatic, like to allow people to be themselves and their flawed selves. They're sometimes on, sometimes off, sometimes doing the right thing, sometimes not, is the way that that's the most powerful 
thing that you can do because it keeps people engaged instead of dissociating and just never watching the news again. It's like you're, you're saying toggle, toggle it down, you know, turn it down a little bit, turn it up a little bit. It's a come as you are invitation where you really mean it. <laughs> oh, it's so inviting. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, is there anything else? There's a couple of books that you've written. Radical Reproductive Justice is an anthology that I edited with a team of four other writers. And then I wrote Reproductive Justice with Ricky Solinger and then Undivided Rights, which is also a book on reproductive justice that I wrote with other writers. So the Calling In book is my first solely authored book. And even then I'm overstating it, even though I've written the 500 pages, it's been influenced by centuries of history and the great mentoring I've had with a lot of elders who didn't give up on insufferable me. <laughs> Are there other resources that you might guide people towards? Well, I love everything that Adrienne Marie Brown has written. I mean, she is one of those young people that I'm awed by. I mean, I think Adrienne's like 20 or 30 years younger than me. And everything she writes, I eagerly buy and just inhale like it's, you know, breath to me. I mean, one way that I called Adrian, I said, you know, some writers take your breath away. Adrian gives you your breath back. That's how strong she is. So I love reading her work. Now, I don't agree with everything she says, but then I've never read anybody I totally agree with. But but I sip from it, which is that which I find resonant and useful and recommend it for everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good, good. And I found some other resources that you had mentioned on another page. So we're going to fill these show notes up with all kinds of things that you can do if you're motivated by this, if you're interested. I also like, you know, human rights as the umbrella and that there's these different wings, if you will. But we're all, it's, that's the one mountain. That's the North Star. The there's many pathways up the human rights mountain. You might go on the LGBT path. I'm going to go on the racial justice path or the disability path. Yeah, or the women's it rights. Really matter yep, that's right. Because we're all in the same movement, climbing mm. the same mountain. Mm. That's again like a calling in. We're all in this together. Everybody can be differentiated and different. And, you know, there's room for argument about what's the best way. I hope we argue because it's only in that crucible of argument do we arrive at the best solution. Group think is actually the poorest thinking humanity can do. And if people wanted to reach you, how might we? My website, LorettaJRoss.com. All right. That sounds good. So we are going to fill this up. The level of resource and this idea of giving breath is just so powerful. And I can imagine people that are listening to this that are feeling the same thing. And, you know, I know, you know, you're left with this wanting more. So that would be where to go. You would go to TherapistUncensored.com backslash episodes and you'll find this there and that will link you to many 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 of these resources if you don't go directly to lorettaross.com also really advise for you to get these books is your new book out yet no it'll be out in the fall of this year fall of this year uh, simon and schuster signed a contract with me last april and i didn't realize quite at the time that that meant that they controlled this release date which is fine because they want to build a market up for it. And, you know, I'm working with a lot of vice presidents there. So they're giving it a good investment and time and attention. And the other thing I want to appreciate about them is that they pointed out when I was concerned about the delay in publishing the book, and you know, I had largely written it before we signed the contract. 
They said, Loretta, this is an evergreen topic. Do you think people are going to stop calling each other out before we get this book out? I said, you got a point there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they said, so whenever it's released, it will be timely. Let go of that anxiety. Mm. Is there any reason they're holding it back? Their developmental process. I've talked to their marketing team, their young adult team. They've got a whole strategy involved in yeah, this. Yeah. Okay. Well, you which know. I appreciate yeah, exactly. by getting that high level of attention. Yes, that is wonderful. But you do have a TED Talk that is fantastic. Yeah, we did get a TED Talk this summer, Don. Yes, yeah. and it's recent. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would really direct people to go directly to the TED Talk. And there's other YouTube videos and there's more presentations that you've done and we've just only yeah. we've only scratched I don't the post surface anything but people who are into social media they keep posting stuff and then i have a team that makes sure that stuff is up there and so you know i'm i'm old school i'm almost 70 years old so i keep telling people my twat don't tweet but that doesn't mean i don't know anything about social media <laughs> <laughs> i let tw- the young people handle it my twat don't tweet that is wonderful <laughs> But rest to say that the people that are laughing with us and that are delighted by this, there's a lot more of Loretta Ross out to be found. And we just scratched the surface. In particular, I loved your, and I sent to my son, your commencement address. That was so wonderful. So there's lots more. Please find her, follow her, buy her books. And is there anything else you want to direct folks to do or any less? Well, again, I just say, have fun joining the human rights movement because we're stronger than anybody who thinks that they can defeat our dream of human rights for everybody. Perfect place to end. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I know that you don't always necessarily do these interviews and things like that or may I don't know but I was just so grateful that you said yes you're right they're getting rarer because my publicity team says that I make myself too accessible and so what I used to give away and the professionals are saying Loretta clam up till after the book is out (laughs) they're, they're really monitoring me now which is fine but what they get wrong is that I'm doing this to build movement you're doing this because it's profitable for you. You're helping me out. But don't get my motives mistaken for your motives. <laughs> I'm doing this to build movement. That's why I started it. I'm still on that. So even though that means that you've got these intellectual property right kind of eh, going off, that is not my motive. And I can't become that just because it works for you. That is fantastic. So thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, but they are getting less frequent, not because of the profit thing, because I just have to finish the book by April. So my available time is actually getting more limited so that I can fulfill the contract. Mm -hmm. Having the privilege of the mic and having this kind of an audience, is there anything that you would say to me or to people that have just some privilege of voice? Well, I could basically say, Anybody that makes you feel bad about being yourself doesn't have your interests at heart. Trust that. You know, we all have something to learn. We all have places we could grow. But anybody who really cares for us is going to offer that through the lens of love and respect. If they offer it in any other way, it really ain't about you. It's about them. That's how I really feel. Because I teach through that lens. I keep telling you. 
Teaching should not be punishment. Teaching should not be hazing. Teaching should be the joy of learning. So if I'm not letting you have fun learning, I'm doing something wrong, not you. And I teach a course called White Supremacy. <laughs> if you're not having fun learning about white supremacy, I'm doing something wrong. We sometimes talk about those ta-da, those light bulb moments, and I'm they're just sparking through this whole interview and through you know, I just know people are like, Oh yes. Oh yes, you're saying these things. It's so good. Well, we will do anything we can do to help promote your message for sure. All right. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye now. So you've been hearing our interview with Loretta Ross. Amazing. <laughs> so inspiring. I'm so grateful. And uh, I hope you are too. And if so, you know, we're going to continue to bring this kind of incredible content to you. We would love for you to join our community. It's as little as $5 a month. And there's different tiers and they get different things. But it's through your support that we're able to provide this show. And in addition, if you do join, we often do follow-up episodes, deeper dives into different topics, and that's how you'll get access to those. So please, therapistuncensored.com backslash join is where you can become part of our community. And let's do this thing. Take care. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.